Lord Jesus, oh, we thank you that we can hear your word today. Lord, we thank you for what's already been read aloud. Lord, you tell us not to, to, to have the public reading of Scripture. And so we've heard it today. Your word alone is enough. Your word is powerful. And we just pray as we dive in here that you'd speak, you'd apply different moments of this message to people's hearts right where they're at, in this room, viewing this online. Lord, you would just take it right to our heart. We want to hear from you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you are feeling out of place or you feel out of place. I remember, oh, it's probably been six or eight years now, had a neighbor around the corner from me and um, kind of became friends with him and was talking with him. And he's originally from India and now here, and, um, and so he, him and I and another neighbor were kind of friends, and then he had a brother-in-law coming in who lives in England. So his brother was come, brother-in-law was coming to visit, and his brother-in-law wanted to see Bellingham and meet some local people. So his brother-in-law and myself and, and then three or four other guys, we were just like, all right, we're up for something. So we went out one night and talked, and then the next night my neighbor made us delicious Indian food at his house, and we just talked and talked and talked, and, and his brother-in-law was really kind of gregarious and exciting and funny, and so, so it was a lot of fun, and we just talked about anything and everything, and, you know, and, the, and, and there we're talking about our faith, so I'm trying to share the gospel with them and explain it, and, and they have a Sikh background, and so somewhere in there, we got talking about creation and where does the earth come from I don't, I don't remember what led us there so i just said well i've i believe what the bible says that god created it and it, and i'm i'm a young earth guy you know i think the earth in thousands of years not millions of years and i, I was just kind of explaining that to them and it was like <laughs> it was like i grew a third eye in my forehead I mean, they just were looking at me not o- not only my my neighbor from the two guys from indian even the other guys, and a couple of them were Christians, were just looking at me, and it was this like, you mean people still think that? And I was like, y- yeah, I, I do. <laughs> but it was just this kind of like shrinking moment where, you know, and you may disagree with me on that too. I don't know. I'm just, that's where I'm at. And I just had this shrinking moment like, yeah, yeah I still think that way. And it was sort of like, well, wow, I didn't know people still, you know, <laughs> rode dinosaurs to work, you know, like the, it was just this like, where did this guy come from? And I just felt out of place. I just felt, whoa, you know, this is, this was weird. And I, cause I was the only one saying it of the group of maybe five or six of us. And it was just one of those reminders that sometimes our views are, are very uh, limited or not limited view, but limited in acceptance and it just reminded me of, yeah, this whole concept that we've been looking at in Ezra and Nehemiah of being in exile, right? You're not at home. You're not among like-minded thinkers. And so that's why I've been in this, these books of Ezra and Nehemiah, because they're people who actually were in exile. It's following God's people, the land of Judah and Jerusalem, when they were conquered by the Babylonians and sent into Babylon. They were living in another place with other religions and other customs, and everything was foreign, and where, what's God doing? And so we're not, you haven't actually been removed from your home, 
but we feel like it. And so I highlighted this book last week by the Barna Group, David Kinneman, Mark Matlock, Faith for Exiles. And they've done an amazing job in this book. The, the whole, and I, I encourage you to get it, especially if you're working with students, you're working with kids, you're a parent. Um, because what they did is over the years, they've researched, they're a very reputable research company, they've researched all the ways that people have left their faith, especially young people, but then they realized in their data, they always found people who stayed with their faith. And they said, well, maybe we need to flip our research over and find out not why did all these other ones leave. What made those ones stay? What made them continue to be disciples in a hostile culture? And so this book is all about, well, what are the factors that led to what they call a resilient faith? And so it's five factors that they've identified. So it's amazing. And so instead of focusing on, well, this is broken and this is messed up and this is terrible, well, what if we did these five things? Could it create resilient disciples, people who keep following Jesus? But in their book, in chapter one, they describe the exile we're living in. You know, you haven't been hauled off to Babylon, but they say we're in digital Babylon. Digital Babylon. Digital Babylon is the pagan but spiritual hyper-stimulated, multicultural, imperial crossroads that is the virtual home of every person with Wi-Fi, data plan, or for most of us, both. So we're living in a digital Babylon. Something else is in control. Something else is influencing. It's all around us. Millions of opinions, millions of every kind of thought and everything you want to find is around us in digital and so the whole point of this book and our, this sermon series is that we're cultivating faith for exiles. You're living in a land and a time and a culture that doesn't feel like home. Cultivating faith for exiles means, by contrast, that we, young and old alike, trust that Jesus is Lord, even in chaotic, pixelated, no-rules digital Babylon. That's what we're going to continue to do right here. Jesus is Lord. So we propose that the goal of discipleship today is to develop Jesus followers who are resiliently faithful in the face of cultural coercion and who live a vibrant life in the Spirit. We want to keep going for Jesus and going deeper in Jesus and living for Jesus, even if we have a sense of exile. Even when you explain your views and people look at you like you just crawled out of a cave somewhere. Like, did you miss the last 80 years? Like, you know what? I'm sticking with Jesus and his word. So that's the reality, and that's why I found this book helpful, that their experiences with God of people in exile can really speak to us as people who are in a digital exile, in a digital Babylon. What was God doing then? What's he telling us today? So we're going to learn here that faithful exiles must stay true and trust in Christ. Faithful exiles must stay true and trust in Christ. So we're going to cover a couple of some big chunks today, but we'll skip a little bit in there. I'll tell you why in a minute. So just uh, let's just jump in into uh, basically the story of the book of Ezra is that after Jerusalem was destroyed in 587 BC and all the people, many of the people were taken into Babylon, in 538 BC, the Persians take over. And King Cyrus says, all right, you guys can go back to Jerusalem. Go back and rebuild the temple. It's like, whoa, 
For all these years, they're in exile. Everything's burned and destroyed. And God says, no, go back. I want you to rebuild it. They're not a free nation. They're not in control of themselves. But they get to go back and rebuild the place of worship. That's the backstory. So last week we saw Ezra 3. They began to re- they rebuilt the altar and they started the groundwork for the temple. So God's moving. So we're not talking about building temples. We're talking about building the kingdom of God and making disciples. God's on the move, even if other things are in power. So the first one today is that we must stay true to Christ, right? We say true and trusting. I want to show you the true part. And so we're in Ezra chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4. So they've come back. They've, they've started to build. We're, we're going to pick up. They've been there oh, close to 20 years at this point. Ezra chapter 4 says, Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build the, to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of the Persians, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. (laughs) Now, at first you're like, well, what is their problem? Of course they frustrated your plans because you were mean and said they couldn't play with you, right? Can we come over and play with your house? No, we're not playing with you. Didn't that feel a little harsh? So let's look at what's going on here. Notice first in verse 1, the adversaries of Judah. Okay, right out the gate saying, these are not your friends. These are adversaries. These are people that aren't working with you and for you. It doesn't seem like that because they say, can't we build too? But um, they approach them, let us build with you, for we worship God as you do and have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, or whatever his name is. So it seems like a legitimate request. Like, right, can't we help? I mean, doesn't more hands help? Let's get them in there. Get them, a, get them some wheelbarrows and let's go. So here's the backstory. I told you before, the nation of Israel divided in half after King Solomon. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, you'll read it called Israel. Samaria, sometimes the Bible even say Ephraim. That means the northern kingdom, it was actually conquered much earlier than the southern kingdom. It was conquered in 722 BC by Assyria. Destroyed. And what the Assyrians did is they would move you out and move people in. Now, to me, there's weird stories in the Bible. Anybody know that? Weird. I'm going to read you a weird one. If someone says, the Bible's kind of boring, like, you've not read this story. You've not read this story. This is from 2 Kings. Okay, this is telling the story of how the people got there that are coming up and saying, we want to build with you. Okay, this is how they got there. Because they're saying, we've been here since the king of Assyria brought us. So in 2 Kings 17, it says, And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, Sepharavim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria. Okay, there's the name. Instead of the people of Israel. 
And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its city. So you get it? You're out. These guys are in. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. Oh, right. There's that, right? How about that, right? You've got a neighbor. This guy's just not mowing his lawn. He is not mowing his lawn. I'm calling the zoo. Can you just turn a lion loose in that savanna thicket he's got over there and let's go, right? Just, okay. <laughs> They're not worse. They move in and the Lord says, I'm just going to send some lions in here because I don't like what you're doing. So here's what they do about it. So the king of Assyria was told, the nations that you carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them, and behold, they are killing them, because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there, and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made, and every nation in the cities in which they lived. All right, so that's their solution. Like, we've got to stop these lions, send somebody back there to offer some sacrifices, and that'll make it all go away. So there's two problems here with this whole situation. These people living there, how they're worshiping. First of all, I don't know if you picked up on it. They think Yahweh, they think the God of the Bible is another regional deity. Did you pick up in there the God of this land, the God of that land, the God of that land? We need to take care of the God of that land. And how they viewed the world was that each nation had gods and those gods were part of that region part of that territory, and so you just had to appease the God of that land. So they don't really think he's the God of heaven and earth. They don't think Yahweh's the one true God reigning over all. They think he's a regional deity, he's mad, he's sending some lions in there, so let's appease the regional deity. So it's a completely false view of who God is, who reigns over heaven and earth, who's the creator. He's called God Most High. He reigns over all the nations, over all. So they don't really have a true view of who God is. They think he's one God among all the other gods they already worship. And so you worship this way and throw some of this out here for Yahweh, and then the lions don't eat us anymore. Second problem is this whole issue of syncretism. It's a fancy word, but it just means the combination of different forms of belief or practice. So the issue of syncretism is you just add it in. And this is often what missionaries encounter. Let's say they'll, a missionary will go to some new tribe in Africa and they'll explain Christ like, yes, we love Jesus. And then they have their ancestral worship too. Like, we're going to keep worshiping our ancestors and the God of the Son and we'll throw Jesus in there. So they miss, like, no, no, no. Those other things aren't actual true worship. They're not the real God of heaven. They just, we'll just throw it in. Maybe he'll bring us some good luck and my chickens will lay lots of eggs, right? It's just add it in, add it in, add it in. And so that often happens, at least in the past, when you take Christ to new context. That's what was happening with the people that moved into the land. Like, well, we have our gods from Assyria and whatever all those names were, Sepharavim and Avim. They have all their deities and worships, and the Sepharavims was really brutal. A lot of infant sacrifice and horrible things. 
And they're like, oh, well, let's just throw some Yahweh worship on there too. And he's the local deity. So you just mix it all up. Just add a little more on. Add another God in the mix. That's how they viewed things. That's the problem. So when you get to verse 3, can we help you build? You have nothing to do with us in this. It seems harsh, but the leaders are going, you know what? No, because you don't actually know who God is. And you just want to mix them all around, have a big God stew. And so we actually know who God is. He's the God of heaven and earth. And this temple is not just one among the temples. This God's not one among the gods. This is God most high. So we, we can't mix you in there. We cannot do that, right? You have nothing to do with us in this. We alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel. We're going to do it because you don't have it right, right? So the people, so the next thing they're like, well, fine then, <laughs> Okay, you're not going to let us play. You don't like how we worship. And they just go after frustrating them. And they hire people to discourage them. And and it goes on for years. So that's the situation. It seems like a legitimate thing. Yeah, just let them help. No, no, no. Because they're going to mix it all around. They don't really know God. And they just want to, there's no sense of that. And that's for us. That's exactly the culture we're in. We must stay true to Christ. Right? He, his own words are this, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You can't just mix it all in and throw a little Buddha on top. No, 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 no. The way, the truth, and the life. And so Christianity is exclusive. It's exclusively inclusive, though. It's exclusively inclusive. There's only one way in. There's only one door. There's only one Savior. There's only one risen from the dead. There's only one at the right hand of the Father. But it's inclusive and that anyone can come, right? Come. It's inclusive that any person from any country, from any language, from any background, you can come and confess Jesus is Lord. It's in, everyone's invited. All right? Everyone's invited to come to Christ, right? But you have to come to Christ. It's not, well, I don't want to come to Christ. I just want to be really faithful to the religion I had before. No, then that doesn't work. We must stay true to Christ. In our culture, we have to resist pluralistic syncretism. In one hand, I think it's good for us to know it's not new. It might be new in America, but it's not new that cultures around you want to mix your beliefs in. It's new for us, but we have this pressure. I showed you this. This is from... Uh, Mark Sayer's book, Disappearing Church, he's talking about our post-Christian context. He says, The temptation of this discomfort between Orthodox Christian faith and the civil religion of the third culture is to do what it takes for the pressure to go away. Right? There's pressure right now against exclusive beliefs. All the believer must do is ease up on the beliefs that grate against contemporary sensibilities. Tweak your view on sexuality to be more embracing of today's mood or move from a particularist view of Jesus to a universalist one and you're warmly embraced into the fold. If we just kind of back off some of those things, let's not say, and maybe those parts of Genesis we throw out and you know, maybe it doesn't have to be only Jesus, or maybe your God is kind of like Jesus, and what is, I don't want you to be offended. It says, thus for many Christians raised with the ethic of relevance, of proving to the world that Christians can be both believers and carry the contemporary 
currency of cool. The new pressure presented by an intolerant tolerance proves too much. Some compartmentalize their beliefs into an orthodox secularist mashup, syncretism, right? We'll just mix it all in. Parts of the Bible that are hard, we, we drop. And others simply disappear into the cold embrace of secularity. It's a real challenge, right? This is not just some old thing because they had lions attacking them. It is a constant pressure around us to just mix it in. Take off the hard edges. Don't say it's only Christ. Change this view. So we want to stay true to Christ, true to his word, and we want to do it full of grace and truth. And this is the key. Because a lot of times we can be full of one or the other. If you're full of grace, sometimes you let go of the truth. Sometimes we're so full of truth, we forget about being gracious. But when Jesus, the Son of God, appears and takes on flesh, it says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus is our 100% example of this. When he's on earth, he's completely true, and he constantly hung out with sinners. But yet he remained completely true, and he never changed that. He never said, well, never mind these things. He was able to love them, point them to the truth, and he says, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's our tension, to be completely true, faithful to Christ, faithful to his word, and yet to be also full of grace, where we can extend that to people. So we want to stay true to Christ. That's what they were doing here. Like, no, we can't let you build this temple with us because you don't get it. You just want to mix it all around. We're not, we can't do that. Now, they could have, the people could have said, whoa, we were wrong. Yahweh is the one true God. Help us change. That would have been a different conversation, but that's not what they're saying. Here's the reality. It's actually a matter of life and death. Suppose you go to the doctor and you're not feeling right. And they run all the scans, all the blood work, all the tests. They just, they've tested you all out, and it's not looking good. And they come back and they say, well, this is a, looking like a cancer diagnosis. But if that's troubling to you, we can just treat it like a flu. So I'm just going to give you some flu. If you'd rather view it as a flu, because cancer diagnosis is harsh, and there's only one way to treat this kind of cancer. But if you don't like that one way, we can treat it this other way. You'd be like, listen, doctor... <laughs> Tell me what I need to do to stay alive, right? You wouldn't say that to the doctor. You wouldn't say, no, I don't like that interpretation of data. I'm going to make up my own interpretation. The data says I'm fine. I'm going to grow six inches and play in the NBA. No, no, no. When it's life or death, when you're in front of the doctor and the blood works in front of you, you want them to tell you the truth. What do I need to do next? What is the treatment? How do I face this? What's gonna, you don't want him to tell you things to make you feel better. You don't want to say, this is how I view my diagnosis. No, no. There's an actual diagnosis. Those cells are foreign to your body. They are killing you. They need to be out. So the pressure of society to just mix it all around, just take whatever belief makes people feel better, in the moment it reduces the pressure. In the moment, it makes you fit in. In the moment, it makes you not be in weird conversations like I was with my neighbors. And they're like, where, what rock did you crawl out of with your beliefs? But it's a matter of life and death. If Jesus is the only one risen from the dead, the only way to the Father, the only source of forgiveness, we can't let go of that. 
We can't soften that so that people feel better as much as we want to so that we feel better. I don't like making people mad. I don't like feeling that way. I don't like feeling like an alien, but it is a matter of life and death. And when people get to a place, they might not be there in a conversation now, but when people get to a place and they say, I'm searching, and what is this whole thing, life thing about? It's usually when they encounter pain. Why am I hurting? What is life about? We want to be ready with the truth. And the reason that they will ask you the truth in that moment is because they've experienced your grace, right? You've been around them and you've loved them. And so right now, as exiles in digital Babylon, we want to stay true to Christ, but we also want to do it like Christ, full of grace and truth, because it's that urgent. We can't soften the edges. We can't just mix it around so that it works out. People need to know the answer. So that's our first one. Okay, so I'm going to have to go fast in this next part here. But what happens is, and this messes with our Western way of thinking, the text jumps. So verse 5, it said they frustrated him into the days of Darius. Then it says, and in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation. Ahasuerus is also known by the name Xerxes. And it says, and in the days of Artaxerxes, they wrote, so those are... Artaxerxes is his son. Basically, the, te- the text between verse 5 and verses 6 and 7, the text jumps 70 years to 450 B.C. We've been about 520. This messes with our Western mind. We're linear. Follow the timeline. Follow their chronology. This is Eastern. This is not how they write or think. So Westward, why did you just jump? Those kings are, are literally 70 years plus later. But what you have to realize, when they write these things, they're writing not for chronology. They wrote for emphasis. So what he does, I'm going to say this fast and move on. He basically says, they frustrated the plans of the builders. And I'm going to give you several examples of what they did, not in chronological order, but just in order of look how bad it is. So that's what he does. So he jumps. The story from verse 6 to verse 23 is like 70 years later. The text jumps And that's actually because it jumps to the time when Ezra is alive. This whole first part, Ezra's not here yet. Ezra comes into the scene later. So he's writing this first part from material he has. And then the next part, when we start chapter 7, he's writing it first person. So the text jumps because he's emphasizing, look at this bad story. Look at this next bad. Look at what they did to us. So then when you get to Ezra chapter 4, verse 24, it jumps back to 520 B.C. Again, we're like, what? This frustrates Westerners. Like, why would you write that way? That's not what happens next. But that's not how they wrote. They were like, I'm going to just tell you all the things in any order I feel like uh, about how terrible it was. So I'm, I'm going to stay Western, and I'm going to jump to 424 because I like to stay in chronological order. Sorry, Ezra. So that's what we're going to do. So verse 424 then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. So they said, no, you can't build with us. And the people said, we're going to make life miserable. And finally, they just quit. Like, we just, this is miserable. We can't do this. They're after us. It stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Okay, so that, I just explained to you, that's how we get, that's how the text jumps right there. So the second point, after all that explanation... <laughs> is that we're going to be trusting Christ through 
opposition. The first one was being true to Christ. Next one, we're going to trust Christ through opposition. So we're going to look, this jumps into chapter 5 here. Chapter 5. So I'm going to follow this along and uh, see how far we get here. Chapter 5 says, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Yeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that's in Jerusalem. So they finally, like, we got to get back on this thing, right? It's been sitting there empty because we were frustrated. So let's get up and get going. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the same time, so no, we've jumped about 20 years here, okay? At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, that's where they are, and the next dude, Sheth, and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? And they also asked them this, what are the names of the men who are building this building? <laughs> Don't you like, who told you you can do that? I want your name right now. I'm, right now I'm writing it down and you're in trouble. It says, verse 5, but the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. And they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. So they, they, they stop in chapter 4. Some time goes by. They're like, let's get back on this project. It's about 20 years later. And then they get going on the project, and the people are like, who told you you could be out here building this thing? Give me your names. So that's so that another group comes to stop them. So we're going to just pound through this chapter here because it tells the whole story. It says, this is a copy of the letter that Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and this other dude, Sheth, and his associates, the governors, were in the province, and they sent to Darius the king. Now listen to this report. They sent him a report in which it was written, to Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones, and timber is laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish its structure? We also asked them their names for your information, that we might write down the names of their leaders, secretly hoping you'd bust them. And this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. See their view of God? Heaven and earth. And we are building the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. So they have a, this is God of heaven and earth. This isn't some local deity. Verse 12. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. So it's real important right there they owned it. Even though it was likely the sins of their ancestors, their parents, their grandparents. We know exactly why it got destroyed. We abandoned God. That's a real important thing. (laughs) If you're off track, if you're going the wrong way, if you've been running from the Lord, if your life's falling apart, there's a moment when you've got to say, why am I here? I've abandoned following the Lord. I've gone out my own way, and I'm ready to come back. Because that's what he says. They said, we acknowledge that, and now we're on track, and now we're building the buildings asking us to build, and people aren't happy about it, and we're doing it anyway. 
And this is where we're at. So there's a point where you need to own it. So that's what they do. They own it. Verse 13. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And that the gold and the silver of the house of God, which is Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he'd made the governor. It said to them, take these vessels and go put them in the temple. So they basically retell the story. I'm going to jump ahead for time here. They retell the story. You get down here to chapter 6, and uh, Darius is like, all right, go ahead, let's look for that thing. So they, they look, they look, and they look, and they find the letter. They find it. So if you look in chapter 6, Darius the king made a decree, and a search was there. In verse 2, in Ecbatana, they found it. The scroll was found, a record. And basically, they find Cyrus's. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God in Jerusalem, let the house be rebuilt. So they find the letter. Jump down to verse 6. This is now... Uh, actually, jump to verse 7. So this is Darius's reply. He's like, okay, I found it. Turns out that's really what Cyrus said. Look at verse 7. Let the work on this house of God alone. So he finds it. He goes, yep, let him do it. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house on its site. Moreover, he's like, let me up the ante. I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full. It's like, not only can they build it, you're going to pay for it, right? And without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from Babylon, from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, sheep, for the burnt offerings, wheat, salt, wine, oil, as the priests require, let that be given to them day by day without fail. So you're going to pay for it. You're going to supply what they need for worship, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven. Notice he's calling him the God of heaven. And pray for the life of the king and his sons. He's like, I want that, I want that God in my corner. Pray for me on this. Now, this part's amazing. <laughs> we to talk about criminal justice. Verse 11, I also make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house made a dunghill. <laughs> Whoa. Wow. Don't mess with the Darius, right? He's like, listen, you're going to defy me. You're going to be impaled on your house. So that's, they go on, and they do it. They rebuild it, and uh, they, they jump ahead, and so... It happens. They stop them. They start again. They say, well, we're going to tattle on you to King Darius. He says, nope, God actually said to do this. We're going to do this. So the second point is that we want to trust Christ through opposition, right? We've got to trust him through opposition. And one of the things I think we need to remember is that we need to expect opposition, even doing God's will. That's one of the reasons I chose this book is that it just, it, it can feel shocking. God sends them back. He says, the king's going to pay for it. They're doing exactly what they're supposed to do. And everyone around is fighting them. And you're like, why? Why are they fighting them? Why isn't it smooth? Why doesn't everyone run over and give them money and supplies and say, go for it. We'll never trouble you again. Why, when you're doing God's will, is there opposition? It's just how it is. 
We have to expect it. You can be 100% following God, living for Christ. I'm going to be a resilient disciple. I'm going to be reaching out. I'm going to stay true to him. And you're going to just you can face opposition all the way. It doesn't mean you're not where you're supposed to be. It's part of the deal. It's part of the deal. So first or second Timothy says, "You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions." This is Paul writing to Timothy, and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. He's saying, "Look." Paul was very clearly sent out by God to share the gospel. He's like, yeah, look at all these towns I did it. I'm getting persecuted. It says, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. It is the reality we live on hostile territory. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, right? Keep going in our faith, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, for every good work. So we got to trust Christ through opposition. Paul, <laughs> doing the work that God told him to do, is getting opposed. Here, the Jews are getting opposed. You are going to be opposed. And what does he say? Just dig into the word. Dig in. It's got everything you need. Stay on target. So there's our two things. Faithful exiles must stay true and trust in Christ. We've got to stay true to Christ. We can't soften. We can't take away the exclusivity. We can't mix it up with ever faiths. We can't throw out certain parts of the Bible because they don't fit in today. We're going to stay true to Christ, full of grace and truth, and we're going to keep trusting him because there will be opposition. So I was trying to figure out what what made them keep going when people were in their face? Like, I'm going to write your name down. I'm going to take it to King Darius, who we just read impales people on beams of their houses. I'd be a little scared. Like, never mind. I don't own a hammer. It's not me. What made him keep building? What made him keep going? What made him not freak out? And I, my thought is, is they experienced God in Babylon. They were ripped out of their homes, they grow up in a foreign land, and they have experienced God in such a way that they trust God in the new work he's doing. That's what Paul is saying. You've got to experience God by getting into his word. And when you have experienced God for real, not memorize facts and figures and dates, and when you've experienced God, then you do stay true to him and you can face opposition. It just anchors you. I've told this story before. I mean, it's not everybody's heard it. When I was 18, graduated from high school, I went on a mission trip with my church. And on our way, we were heading to Mexico, but on our way, we stopped in eastern Oregon, and we stayed at a Native American rodeo grounds that they use like once a year. So there was a couple hundred youth, and we were kind of doing a three- or four-day training and they're like, let's find the most horrible place we can find so that when you get to Mexico, it actually feels better. So that's where we were. We were in a, it was 
a rodeo that was used once a year, so you got tents in the big dirt field. There was a big plywood building that they'd made into the cafeteria that was actually hotter than being outside. And, uh, and there was these burrs that would get into your shoes and your clothes everywhere. It was like, this is horrible. So, um, so we're there, and at one point, like, go off, and you're going to have some morning solo time. Go off with your Bible and God. So it's sweltering hot, and it's miserable, and it's dirt. And I just start going, and I crossed under a couple barbed wire fences, you know. When you're 18, you don't think, should I cross this barbed wire fence? You're just, how do I cross this barbed wire fence? The should part doesn't enter in. So I cross a few fences, and I see a structure. It's a little structure, wooden, and I go, and what it is, it's basically an abandoned outhouse. So I was a little terrified, but I was like, I'm melting I'd like to be out of the sun. So I opened the door. It's abandoned. It's dry. My next thought, will I fall through the floor? But I didn't. And I just went in there and sat down because it was not in the dirt and it was not in the sun and there was no burrs in there. So I just sat down and I opened the Bible and I experienced the Lord. I don't know how else to say it. <laughs> in a gross, rotten out outhouse, right? Lord, you could have met me in my bedroom. No, no, no. You got to go to Eastern Oregon, to this horrible ranch, to this burrs, to a rotten outhouse. And I remember I had an NIV Bible, and I read Philippians 1.6, and it said, I pray, this is in the NIV, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will know every good gift you have in the Lord. And it was like, oh, the more I talk about God, the more I'll know how good God is, and he just met me in the outhouse. I don't know how else to say it. I experienced his presence. I experienced his love. I experienced his power. It was real. That's all I can say. If anybody had an experience like that, you just knew God was there. You don't know how, you can't describe it. It was not an audible voice. It was not a vision. I didn't see anything. And so that experience carries you through when people are hostile. You say, but I've experienced God. He's real. When people want to mix stuff around, you say, yeah, but I've experienced Jesus and he's true. We can't mix him around. Just like you can't say your friend is somebody they're not. Like, no, I actually know my friend. Right? You can't say they're this when they're not that. I know Jesus, so we can't change him. So when you've experienced God, you stay true to him, and you hang in there in opposition. So let me just encourage you. I think they experienced God in exile. When you experience God, it sustains you through exile. So let me encourage you to be intentional about experiencing God this week so that we can stay true. Get alone with your Bible and just read and listen and just say, God, I need to experience you because I want to keep going. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you sustain us in exile, that you sustain us with your reality. And it's hard, Lord. It's hard living in a foreign culture right in our existing culture. Lord, help us. Help us to stay true to you. Help us to be full of grace and truth. Help us to... Be okay in opposition. Help us not to melt and wilt, not to be scandalized, but just say, I'm going to keep going. Lord, we want to be used by you. We want to make disciples, and we want to be disciples in this current moment. Lord, we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.